Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today you are in for a very large, very real treat because I have back with me Vince Walden. Vince is the partner with Ernst & Young's Forensic and Integrity Services Practice. We're also joined by Matt Galvin. Matt is the Global VP, Ethics and Compliance at AB InBev. And we're here to talk about an article, started with an article that Vince has in the most recent issue of Fraud Magazine entitled Accelerating Anti-Fraud Innovation and some of the really incredible innovations that Matt has put forward in his compliance program. So, gentlemen, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, welcome and thank you for taking the time to visit with me today. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. So, I'm uh, really, really excited. Great. So, what are some of the key reasons for the success of an innovation project in the anti-fraud arena, from your perspectives? You know, this is Vince. Maybe, Matt, I'll go. I'll just chime in first and, and certainly comment. But when I think about why we see companies really take on innovation in compliance, it's really about measuring that compliance effectiveness and how do we keep uh, compliance fun, interactive, and top of mind within employees. Where we see it in a transactional type analysis with measuring effectiveness, when you're able to see quality, measurable improvements in the quality of transactional data moving through a system, whether that's the quality of payments or less risk payments going through, the quality of vendors entering in the systems in terms of more compliance checks being done, uh, more due diligence being done, less risks or less hotline measures being put together. Those types of measuring, you know, putting the systems in place that can measure those things is what's driving a lot of the innovation and compliance. And it has measurable results. And I think it's uh, not not only in terms of just culture, but also in terms of dollar savings. Uh, Matt, do you want to add to that? No, I, I think that's completely right. I think there's a ton of movement. And as people are beginning to really understand the technologies available to them, whether it's advances in data aggregation, whether it's better ways to harmonize different systems of data, whether it's better understandings of what kind of tests or indicators you know, coming out of the data will be useful, there's a great amount of movement in the space and also in the other ends too, in natural language processing and artificial intelligence, machine learning, where you see success is where you have both married those problems up to the infrastructure you have to solve a problem that everyone agrees is a problem and that people accept it. And I think those are three kind of both when you see successes, you get those three things right, as well as everything else that's really cool in the technology, but getting those three things right, I think are critical to the mix. So let me flip it the other way and ask, what are some of the key reasons for the failure of an innovation project in either the anti-fraud or the compliance arena? Yeah, that's a funny one. And even in the article, we point out directly, spiffy technology doesn't innovate. Spiffy technology alone doesn't innovate. And some of the failures or the risks that we see in that are when the team, or I'll just say the compliance team or the legal team, or whoever spearheading the initiatives don't involve the business to the full extent. When it's not a collaborative exercise, it's harder to get a lot of adoption. I mean, it's I think it's probably more 51 or even 60% more of a people project than it is a technology project when you're innovating, especially with compliance and when you want to drive behaviors. The other thing I see as a risk is that sometimes 
the compliance professionals or this, whoever's spearheading the innovation project within the department think of it more of an IT project as opposed to a business domain problem or issue. And they, they expect the, the business, the IT folks, perhaps the technical, the data science folks, to know what risks are out there and to come up with the business questions and interpret the results, which can also lead to failure. I mean, data scientists do what they do, which is help guide and mine the data. But most importantly, it's you got to ask the right business questions. And that's really up to the compliance and anti-fraud and legal professionals to come up with and interpret the results. I think that's totally right. And, you know, I think there's any number of ways to go wrong. And I think right away from the start, the compliance function itself is a risk function. And, you know, risk functions don't necessarily lend themselves to innovation, not because people in risk functions aren't particularly innovative. It's just they just see a lot of risks around innovation itself. And so it's like asking someone on a tightrope to do three backflips when, you know, they're just trying to get across the line. When you take it to innovation itself, I mean, I think the analogy when you look at all the, the pace around self-driving cars, and what's going to go right or wrong with self-driving cars? You know, the first is that, you know, the cars drive in an imperfect world. Roads are bumpy. You can have the best analytic system in the world to look at accounting systems, to look at compliance systems. But if the hygiene of your data is bad, if your road is bumpy, you could easily crash. And it's kind of hard to figure out what went wrong. Was it the car? Was it the wheels in the car? Was it the program? Or was it the road? And you have so many different factors when you want to do root cause analysis when something does go wrong. It's difficult to see it. And to marry that kind of mindset of like trial and error and learning and root cause analysis and to innovate in a space where you're always thinking about the risk, it's doubly tricky. And I think that's a pretty big barrier to entry and in, in innovation in this space. Well, Matt, in the real world, you have real people, and the quality of your data is going to depend on how that data is inputted. And, and I heard you on Radical Compliance Podcast where you talked about the difficulties with the quality of the data, at least as it was inputted. And I was wondering if you could give a few thoughts around that and how natural language learning may help with that issue down the road. I mean, it's a fascinating area, right? I mean, we spent so much time and effort you know, kind of look, creating our five-year plan about, okay, what are the inputs we want to go in to run, you know, KPIs against them or indicators against them and kind of build machine learning on top of that. But even by doing that, even by training and forcing people to put in things in the right structured way, you're going to have errors. And you can audit people to death, no offense, Vince, but you can audit people yeah. to death and you're still not going to get them to like, you know, do perfect in their data because data entry is by definition, boring. And if they don't understand the output and the importance, and quite often the people looking at the importance are different people than actually doing the inputs, you can get these disconnects and the whole thing can go. And I think it's, it's a really fascinating space in the technology. And that's what you're alluding to, Tom, is that you know, with natural language processing going where we are, the ability to take and aggregate data that is unstructured, that you don't force those structures in, that you can actually account for human nature in terms of how they've done inputs, is growing. And I think that's going to accelerate, you know, the pace of change and the availability and the expectation of regulators in this space. As you can look and process data and get and kind of harmonize data from an imperfect underlying set. And the technology to do that, you know, catches pace with the imperfections of humanity that creates it. I think you're really onto something. And I think you can really short circuit a lot of that pain that we went through in terms of driving structure and hygiene in the underlying data system. Matt, if I could follow up on that directly, you 
detail the project and five-year plan, but if I could ask you to describe what is Brewright, which I understand was the name of the project, how you were able uh, to develop that internal to your company. Sure. And so Brewright is shorthand for a large data aggregation and data analytics compliance system that we've employed at ABMBEP. And what it does is, you know, it takes certain problems. As I said, you need, you need underlying data, you need problems, you need kind of a way to get there. And we say, okay, what are our problems? Well, we see corruption risk as a problem. We see fraud risk or anti-money laundering risk as a problem. We see investigation quality and consistency as a problem. Looking for, you know, the quality of investigations in terms of gender bias or bias within different sectors is a problem. And saying, okay, what data systems do we have that we can either solve those problems or really make compliance officers very efficient with their data to do so. And Brewright is a process by which we've taken now 34 underlying systems, put them in a single unified data model, taken different performance indicators from all those different aspects, those problems I mentioned, fraud, corruption, et cetera, apply them to the data and then create workflows for the compliance teams around the world that they're analyzing what the system defines as a risk and then feeding back the results of all these micro-investigations in a loop that will then reinforce and train the underlying systems itself. So it's kind of gone from a data aggregation and a risk indicator to this massive risk scoring output workflow management system that's perpetually learning. That's Brewright. So Vince, the um, process for innovation, I think, is something that you have thought and a lot about. You've certainly written about it and talked about it. But I was wondering if you might be able to detail for us what the innovation funnel is and go through the five steps. And then we'll use that to talk about how compliance can use that process. Yeah, and I'll be brief in the description because I would just encourage folks to just Google search innovation funnel. It's not a compliance specific concept. It was more general product development. But as I was talking to people and doing research around the article and how I look at how EY operationalizes and formalizes innovation just in general across the entire business, this funnel was fascinating. And I thought, well, it could apply to compliance. And Matt, if we think about it, although subconsciously, I don't think we directly followed this innovation funnel, a lot of the concepts and things that you led kind of follow that and how we continue to innovate on that model, especially Brewright. It first starts with this ideate, and that's the idea creation or brainstorming phase where basically anything and everything can be put on the table. And that's where you encourage participations from the various stakeholders to contribute ideas. And then a formal committee comes together around the evaluation stage, which is stage two, to help narrow down and focus those opportunities. And for those developers out there, I mean, it really follows a kind of an agile development methodology where during the evaluation, you have these, so we call them scrum meetings, where folks are getting together and helping narrow down what's working. This is the accelerate phase is where we can then pick those few projects and begin putting the pilots and feasibility studies in place that then gets to the incubation stage where it's developing sprints, developing two to three week example sprints. We're not talking nine months. It's more like fail quickly, determine if it works or move on. And that's in this incubate stage, which then feeds out for those successful items, this iterate stage, which gets ready for them to turn into new products or turn into new innovations, move to production systems, et cetera. And that process is, while it's a little bit more formal and there's a ton more details around these and structure around it, it's just a good way to keep in mind that companies should be continuing to innovate. I tell my team, you know, if we're not innovating and developing something new every six months, we're dead. We're not going to be relevant. 
And it's a great way to just keep that idea fresh and frankly makes work a lot more fun. One of the things that really struck me in your Radical Compliance podcast was how you detailed the number of corporate functions within your organization you worked with to create BrewRight. I was wondering if you might say a few words about the collaborative nature of innovation, at least as you guys used it. Sure. I mean, I think one of our outsets when we were looking at the problem, we developed BrewRight initially at the time of a $100 billion acquisition, was how do you get the data? And one of the things we found was that the internal audit function of what was the legacy company, SAP Miller, had actually built, you know, some decent foxholes and access points to the data. So they were natural partners. And then audit and compliance, I mean, both risk-oriented functions just tend to be looking at different sets of risks, but quite often we're looking at the risks in the same sets of data. And so we kind of wanted the same thing, right? I mean, there's a lot of talk a year or two ago, and I mean, it's still relevant. It just seems to be less of a buzzword of a single source of truth. And if you think of you know, the economic spend, the commercial data, the ERP systems of a company, quite often that's the lifeblood of a company. And many people want that. You know, many different functions, finance, budget, people running forecasts, and then you start putting in sales data. Of course, you have your revenue and sales. Everybody really wants the same thing. And so, you know, bringing that underlying kind of data lake together to get that harmonized single source of truth. And if you get kind of good at that and start driving that, you become, you know, friends with a lot of people. And as we start to think about, you know, what is compliance, you know, I mean, you can look at it in terms of the systems of processes that you want to go through, or you can look at it as outcomes and encouraging better outcomes and better business decisions. Now, what better way to drive better outcomes and better business decisions is to give people better information and make that information transparent to multiple stakeholders. And that way, everyone's driving compliance. Everyone's driving transparency. Everyone's kind of seeing each other's data. And everyone's going to go in the right direction. Plus, I mean, the business benefits are clear, right? You make better business decisions with better data, not just ethical ones, but just better commercial ones. But you make better ethical ones, too. And driving all of that, you're going to bring everyone together. And I think it's a, a better and kind of less understood function of compliance is to just drive transparency through data. Driving that transparency, driving that greater business efficiency, and driving, hopefully from greater business efficiency, greater profitability. Is that a message that either one of you here in the compliance community, or is it a message we need to try to articulate a little bit more? Matt, you want to take a first stab at that one? or? Uh, sure. I mean, there's different ways you can look at it. I mean, if you take the issue of bribery, I think bribery is both highly inflationary and highly contagious. And so it's a pretty easy sell to someone to say, we should drive transparency around bribery because you know, you're just going to be throwing, you end up just kind of funneling money to places you don't know. That very sequences very closely to fraud and graft. What does surprise me is in a lot of companies, the people looking at fraud are different from the people looking at bribery and they're not talking to each other as efficiently as they could. Because really, they're hunting for the same thing, right? They're hunting for revenue, leaving the company in a way that you don't necessarily see it or that you know someone tries to hide. And then as you kind of have that discussion more, you quickly see and you find other areas that you know transparency does lead to better commercial outcomes. And I think it's something that you don't hear enough in the compliance community, but I think people tend to be talking about it all in the same way they might just not have access to the data or the resources to kind of 
bring those folks together and have that conversation in a way that you can actually take impact. It might just be a little bit overly theoretical. Vince, what do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, and I would add, you know, when I talk to compliance officers, the topic is so much, you know, how do we measure compliance effectiveness in a cost-effective manner too? And I also want to put a return on investment metric to it. And one of the better metrics, you know, one of the better metrics that I can point to is, you know, in the ACFE's annual report to the nations on occupational fraud, you know, they looked at companies, they have one of the graphs in that report talks about the duration and cost of individual frauds when controls were in place and versus when controls, certain controls were not in place. And I think the number one or the number two highest return on investment control that cut the duration of the fraud from 24 months to about 12 months was when data monitoring and analytics were in place. In fact, the average, I think the difference between in cost savings was like over $100,000 per incident when controls were in place versus not in place. And if you think about that, if you do 10 investigations a year within your company, and it's a $100,000 savings, which naturally it would be because the duration of the frauds were typically cut in half. They were caught sooner, so they weren't allowed to progress as long. If you wanted a quick back-of-the-envelope ROI, that's a million dollars. If you're doing 10 investigations a year at an average cost of 180, 200 grand a year versus what it could have been, less than 100K. And again, I encourage people to kind of look for those types of measurable evidences within their programs to demonstrate the success of their innovation, you know, their compliance innovations. So gentlemen, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time, but I was wondering, in addition to the Fraud Magazine article that I introduced at the start of the podcast, are there any other resources that discuss some of the topics or expand rather upon some of the topics that we've talked about in this podcast? I'd point to, there's several other Fraud Magazine articles. In fact, Matt and I uh, wrote an article a couple months ago, kind of diving into risk scoring and what the BrewRight platform is. And the uh, I think it was the March 2018 issue of Fraud Magazine, if you Google that. The other thing, though, is what's helpful, Matt, I think one of the kind of more interesting ones was the uh, Harvard Business Review case study that uh, was done that you did with Professor Eugene Soltis, which I think for those who can either subscribe or I think you have to pay for it, but the, the article was named Designing a Compliance Program at AB InBev what really took him through, I almost think, through this innovation process is the story. Any comments on that? Any other recommendations? No, I think that those are two good ones. And I think another one, you know, when you refer to you know, the impact metrics of compliance as opposed to the process, Solt has also put out an article with Clay Chen last year about defining the impact of compliance. But I think those are all great sources, Vince. Well, gentlemen, I wanted to uh, thank you both for taking the time to visit with me today. I've been visiting with Vince Walden. Vince is a partner with Ernst & Young's Forensic and Integrity Services Practice. And Matt Galvin, Matt's the Global VP of Ethics and Compliance at ABM Bev. Gentlemen, I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom. Me as well. Thank you so much. If you're a compliance professional looking for a convenient and effective way to fulfill your continuing education requirements, go to fcpacompliancereport.com slash courses and choose from four hour-long training packages that will keep you current. That's fcpacompliancereport.com slash courses.